name, and then Elisha with an S-H. You have, we left off with Elisha returning to his yoke of oxen after saying he would follow Elijah. And we read a passage from Luke chapter 9 where Jesus told a certain man, follow me. And when that man asked to return to his family, Jesus said, no man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now there's another passage that speaks even more directly to what Elisha wanted to do. And it's found in Matthew chapter 10, verses 36 through 37. Matthew 10, 36 through 37, if you're taking notes. And here's what Jesus said. And a man's foes, his enemies, shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If you hear somebody say, family first, family first, I understand what they mean. But if you love God more than you do your family, then you'll love your family the way you're supposed to. If you love your family more than you do God, you've got your priorities completely out of order. And there are people who have that problem with their priorities. But if you love God correctly, you'll love your family just like you're supposed to. Husbands, if you love God first, you'll love your wife like you're supposed to. If you put your wife between you and God, you have a problem because you'll do what she says rather than what God says. And that could be extended to friendships and work relationships and all of that. Now, in our text, in 1 Kings 19, Elisha was plowing with a team of oxen. And we learned one spiritual truth from it, and I just refreshed your memory about those scriptures we looked at last week. So let's learn another spiritual truth from it. Plowing with a team of oxen is a good thing. It's good and it's right to earn an honest living with a hard day of work. And some of the people who attend our church and who watch online have jobs that are very physically demanding, others less so. But it's a good thing to make an honest living doing hard work. I doubt there are many of us, I won't say there are none of us, but I doubt there are many of us in here who've ever walked behind a beast of burden as it plowed a field. And that's not an easy task. But there was another field under which Elisha would be called to. And that field was the nation of Israel. And the seed he would sow would be God's word. God would use Elisha to open the eyes of the blind, to heal the leper, and make the dead come to life again. If you've never studied Elisha, you may not have realized that. In fact, as we will read when we get to 2 Kings, Elisha 
would have the spirit of Elijah upon him. Now looking down in our text there in verse 20, and it says this about Elisha, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, go back again for what have I done to thee? And now verse 21 is the new part of our study. And he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Already we see some spiritual growth in Elisha. He had asked in verse 20 to go back and to kiss his father and mother. And then he would follow Elijah. But in verse 21, he doesn't do that. He does return to his oxen, but look what he does. He slew a yoke of oxen and followed Elijah. Although the tools and the animals of his earthly employment were good and honorable, continuing in such employment would have been dishonorable. Because it would keep Elisha from the greater employment God had for him. God didn't call everyone to be a prophet. In fact, he called very, very few people to be prophets. Some of them need to continue to plow with their oxen and raise crops and build things and fight wars and all of that. But in the case of Elisha, had he said, you know, I think I'm good. I'm just going to plow this team of oxen, do what I was doing before. Then he would have ignored the employment God had for him. By serving the people, the boiled oxen, Elisha met their physical needs. By preaching the word of the Lord, he would meet their spiritual needs. And that was the greater need. It's not that you don't have physical needs that need to be met. We all do. But the greater need is the spiritual need. If you think about someone who goes hungry from time to time, perhaps often, and yet has their spiritual needs met, they'll never hunger and they'll never thirst. They're Christians. They die in the Lord. What does it matter what happened to their bodies while they were here? What does it matter that they went a day or two without a meal or had to haul water for miles and miles to get a good drink and a bath? And on the other hand, you take someone who's had every need met, they've never missed a meal or a dessert, and they've had all the things of this world, and yet their spiritual need was never met. What good was that life? They die and go to the lake of fire forever and ever because they're not saved. So what Elisha was going to do was greater than plowing oxen in a field. After his resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ came unto his disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And that's in John 21 where I asked you to turn. So if you would, go ahead and just turn over there. You should already have the place marked. And let's look. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but we're going to look at some parts of it. And let's look particularly at Simon Peter. 
I'm going to read the first three verses of John 21. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise he showed himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. Peter showed us what happens when the master of the house is gone. He went back to his old way of fishing, didn't he? Now, is there anything wrong with being a fisherman? Not at all. Although there was nothing wrong with making a living as a fisherman, Jesus had given Simon Peter a greater assignment. And I'll give you some scriptures you can write down concerning that. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. Matthew four eighteen through 21. It says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. The word left, it said they left their nets. The word left is translated six times in the New Testament as the word forsook, which is the past tense of forsake. So it wasn't that they just walked away from their nets physically. They forsook them. Jesus said, you're fishing, but I'm gonna, you're going to follow me, first of all, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. I have a different employment for you than the one in which you're engaged now. Jesus didn't say, why, you wicked and slothful person, you're out here catching fish with a net. Not at all. But he said, I've got something greater for you to do. So in this passage in John 21, what we see is that Peter returned to the way he had forsaken, the way he had left. He would have done better if he would have burned all of his nets in his boat. But by returning to that from which Jesus called him, Peter was out of the Lord's will. Now that we have that picture You're still in John 21. Look down at verse 15. Jesus had just caused the disciples to prosper with a good night of fishing, and he fed them as well. But immediately following that, rather than talking about how good the fishing was that night, fishermen do that. I'm a fisherman. Boy, if we have a good haul on a trot line or we catch a bunch of crappie, During the spring, we talk about it. Yeah, I was catching them right up there in that brush, about this high, and you know, it's they're they're in the button willows. They're not in the the big hardwoods. We have those conversations. Pretty meaningless to everyone else. Doesn't really matter. But that's not what Jesus talked about. That's what most fishermen would have talked about. Jesus said, "If you look down in verse 15, so when they had dined, Jesus saith unto." Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? 
He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. And then he continues to ask him that same thing and get the same answer from Simon Peter two more times. Now, if you read this passage without the context of those preceding verses, then you'll miss what I believe is the reason or a great part of the reason why Jesus asked Simon Peter this question three times. And when Peter answered the question, Yea, Lord, thou knowest I love thee. What did Jesus say? He said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Peter didn't prove his love for Jesus by catching fish, but by feeding God's word to the people. That's what God wanted him to do. When Jesus called Simon Peter away from his earthly employment, he said, follow me, as we read in Matthew 4. And after that calling, Jesus taught the disciples. And he gave them another command in Luke chapter 9. There in verse 2, he said, and it says, And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And then in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 33, that's right in the middle of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 31 through 33. During that Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his disciples, Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God. What did, what did Jesus want Peter to do? Follow me and preach the kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. So having told his disciples, follow me, fish for men, preach the kingdom of God, and don't worry about what you're going to eat while you're doing that. After all that, Peter left the ministry and was worried about what he would eat. That's why he went back fishing. And at that time, while he's on the shore of Tiberias with these other disciples, He's not preaching the kingdom of God as he was told. And later on in Matthew chapter 19, in verse 27, listen to what Peter told Jesus. Peter said, behold, we have forsaken. That word that was translated as the word left, when it said he left, they left their nets. We have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have, therefore? And although Peter was a Christian, he hadn't really forsaken all. Jesus didn't call all of the fishermen to be his disciples and then apostles, but he did call Peter. He did call Andrew. He did call James and John and left all the others to fish for fish. And as Elisha Peter would have been better off to burn what was between him and Jesus. Are you looking for the definition of an idol? It's really simple. It's anything that stands between you and Jesus. 
That idol could be a person, it could be an object, it could be a profession, a pursuit, some sort of entertainment, a habit. If it stands between you and Jesus, then it's an idol. Perhaps we think of idols as a carved wooden image standing up on some sort of shrine. Oh, that could be one. But there are many. For Simon Peter, it was these nets. And it was this boat. Now, back in our text, if you'll turn back to 1 Kings chapter 19. Back in our text there in verse 21, it says that he took the yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the auction. oxen. Now, you might think, well, why would you throw the instruments of the oxen in with the soup. I think the better way to understand this is he didn't throw the parts of the yoke into the pot. He used them to kindle the fire. That's my understanding of it. Ministered. It says at the very end of verse 21, then he arose and went after Elijah and he ministered unto him. You know the word ministered Let's just stop right here for a second. Let's take somebody off the street and say, describe what you think a minister is. Well, I'll tell you, I wouldn't be fit for their definition. All I have on is a suit. I don't have that big black robe with all those things hanging off and some sort of headdress and an aura about me. Do I have an aura about me, Brother Fulton? Sometimes. It's created by the light reflecting off of my forehead. But I, I don't have all that. Do you know what a do you know what a minister is? He's a servant. The word ministered means served. In fact, a minister is a servant of the Lord who serves people. And if that's not what you're doing, you're not a minister, regardless of what your title is. Jesus set the tone for this there in Matthew chapter twenty and verse twenty eight. When he said, even as the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, Jesus was God. And if anybody had the right to come to earth and say, all of you serve me, we would gladly have done so. But he said, that's not why I came. I came to serve Deacons are ministers. How many of you, I don't want you to expose anything in your own church here if if there's an issue, but how many of you have been in some church where the deacons ran the pastor off or tried to? Yeah, okay. (laughs) And maybe more of you either have or you have sat next to somebody who has. That wasn't their job in the first place. In Acts chapter 6, where those deacons were picked out, the first requirement was that they be full of the Holy Ghost. And someone who's full of the Holy Ghost would never run a pastor off if the pastor's preaching the truth. But deacons are ministers, and they serve others. And in Acts chapter 6, particularly, they served widows who were being neglected in the daily ministration. They took care of carnal things so the Apostles could take care of the spiritual things. 
Elisha was a servant to Elijah. Now, chapter 20 and verse 1. This is actually a good place for a chapter break. I usually say it's not a good place for a chapter break, but this one is. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his host together, and there were thirty and two kings with him, and horses and chariots, and he went up and besieged Samaria and warred against it. We're going to go a whole chapter without any mention of Elijah or Elisha. This is where we learn about some of the events that lead up to the anointing of Hazael, king of Syria. And we spoke about him last week. But first, let's meet Ben-Hadad, the current king of Syria, the one who's going to be deposed. Ben-Hadad, the name means son of Hadad. In fact, there were several kings in the Bible who had the name Hadad or Hadad in their name. And like others, this Ben-Hadad is a Gentile king over a Gentile nation. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 8, when we were studying about David, we saw that he prevailed over Syria. In fact, in verse 6 of that chapter of 2 Samuel 8, it said, then David put garrisons, those are fortresses, in Syria of Damascus. And the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. And the Lord preserved David whithersoever he went. And now in history, at this time we're reading about, the Syrians no longer serve Israel. And they have their own, Israel has their own sin to thank for that. Samaria, who reigned in Samaria? Well, it was Ahab. Ahab who reared up the altar to Baal. He was the associate pastor of the church of the golden calf. Who was the pastor? His wife Jezebel. There's a problem, isn't it? According to 1 Kings chapter 15, there was once a covenant between King Asa of Judah and Ben-Hadad and between their fathers. In fact, at that time, against better judgment, King Asa, who was otherwise a good king, his heart was right with God, but he made a bad call and he sent silver and gold to Ben-Hadad to get him to break a league, an agreement that he had with another ruler named Baasha. And Baasha had fought against Asa. You would think there would be some allegiance between Syria and Israel, but there was not. When we studied chapter 15 of 1 Kings, we learned that Asa, king of Judah, sold out his treasures and his house to keep from being conquered rather than relying solely on God's protection. After all, could not Asa, the good king of Judah, had said, Lord, you know what's in the heart of Baasha, and we're giving him to you. We're leaving him in your hands, and God would have taken care of that. And now the truth is brought to pass that's recorded in James chapter 4, verse 4. And this is what Asa would have done well to know. 
Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. To trust the world is to not trust the Lord. And that's what Asa did. And now the chickens are coming home to roost in a subsequent generation because of his sin. Verse 2, And he, that's Ben-Hadad, sent messengers to Ahab, king of Israel, into the city and said unto him, Thus saith Ben-Hadad, Thy silver and thy gold is mine, thy wives also and thy children, even the goodliest, are mine. This haughty, prideful Gentile dared to claim Ahab's silver, his gold, his wives and children as his very own. On its face, this seems like a preposterous statement from Ben-Hadad, and it is. And the answer from Ahab should have been something like what David said. When he found out Goliath stood against Israel in battle and defied the God and the armies of the living God, David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And upon hearing that Ben-Hadad warred against Samaria, Ahab should have said, who is this uncircumcised Syrian that he should defy the armies of the living God. What did Ahab say instead? Look at verse 4. And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, according to thy saying, I am thine and all that I have. Well, he just rolled over, didn't he? What a coward. He's the king of Israel, the text tells us. Let that sink in for just a moment. Who is Israel but the apple of God's eye? Who is Israel but God's chosen people? Those he called out of bondage and delivered them unto salvation. The king of Israel is the representation of God as king of his kingdom. And Ahab called this Gentile king, my Lord. You look back in the text. And when he did that, he put himself in submission to a Gentile king. He said, I'm beneath you. Ben-Hadad should have been a beloved Gentile servant. Ben-Hadad should have honored the covenant between Israel and Syria and humbled himself under the mighty hand of God, and God would have exalted him in due time. But Ben-Hadad was neither humble nor a servant. And Ahab was not fit to be king at all. He said, I am thine. He called him my Lord and he said, I'm thine. And this is simply robbing God or trying to rob God of that which is rightfully his. Listen to what God said to the children of Israel in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. And ye speaking to the Israelites, and ye shall be holy unto me. For I, the Lord, am holy and have severed you from other people that ye should be mine. 
Now, because Israel is God's, then Israel's king is whose? God's. He belongs to God. He's not king over God. He's a king who belongs to God. Ahab had no right to say to Ben-Hadad, I am thine. Because he belonged to the Lord. Now look further in verse 3. Excuse me, verse 4. At the end of the verse, and he said, and all that I have. So he's said, you're above me, my Lord. And all that I have here is thine. All that I have. This goes with the prior comment. Now think about it as a Christian. We are gods, and everything we have belongs to God. I kind of broke a preacher's stride one time. He was trying to preach, and he'd ask a question here and there from the, the congregation. He'd say, well, the one question I tripped him up on, I wasn't trying to be smart. He said, he held up an envelope, and he said, let's say this is all that you have. This is your money, everything you have. How much of it belongs to God? He's trying to teach on tithing. I said, all of it. And he looked at me. He wanted me to say 10%. I said, all of it. And so he recovered himself, and he, he agreed, but he wasn't expecting that answer from me. All of it belongs to him. So we are gods, and everything we have belongs to God. And it's ours only because God has given it to us. Ahab's things don't belong to Ben-Hadad any more than Ahab belongs to Ben-Hadad. And what Ahab thinks about himself and all he has is a true reflection about what he thinks of God. After all, Ahab is an unbeliever. He's a spiritual adulterer. He's given himself to Baal. So it's no big deal for him to give himself to another one that is not God. An adulterer is not faithful to his new bride or to her new husband. If Baal were a real God, he would have said, Hey, Ahab, you belong to me, not Ben-Hadad. In fact, Ben-Hadad was more real than Baal because Baal doesn't exist and Ben-Hadad did exist. Here's an example. This will hit home. It's this way with many marriages today. In the church and out of the church, it's the same. An adulterer and an adulteress meet at the workplace. And they develop a passion for each other that's unlawful. They're both married, but they tell each other, I'm thine. I'm thine. The, the lawful marital claim to each of them belongs to their rightful spouses, but they throw that lawful claim off and give themselves to another. Do you think they will remain faithful to each other? Probably not. Why should they? After all, to them, marriage is a covenant that can be broken. 
they say to someone, I'm thine, and then say, oh, I'm not really thine, I'm hers, or I'm his. And that's what Ahab was doing. He should have said to the Lord, I'm thine. And then when Ben-Hadad say, all your wives and all you have are mine, no, they're not, uncircumcised Syrian. You've defied God and the armies of the living God, and you're going to pay a price. You know, our relationship with God is also a matter of possession. Listen as I read from John chapter 17, verses 9 through 12. John 17, verses 9 through 12. This is in the middle of Jesus' high priestly prayer. He said, I pray for them. He's talking about the believers. I pray not for the world. But for them which thou hast given me, listen to the possessive pronouns, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition, that's Judas Iscariot, that the scripture might be fulfilled. We put our trust in Jesus for salvation, and we are his. And we can never be lost again. And if you consider those words Jesus prayed there in John chapter 17 that I just read, once we belong to God, we're his, and all of Jesus's are his, we're one. In John chapter 10, Jesus said that we're in his hand, and he is in the Father's hand. And nobody can take us from there. At no time will Jesus, now remember Ahab was God's representation on earth to Israel. As he was the king over Israel, so is God king over his kingdom. And at no time will Jesus ever say to Satan, all mine are thine, all that I have is is thine, or even this. Aren't you glad for this? Jesus won't even say, I'll let you have one of them. Because I'd be that one. If there, if Jesus could drop one off and say, you know, he's more trouble than I thought he'd be, it'd be me. But he's not going to let one go. Oh, yes. The one who dies as a lost person, as Judas Iscariot did, never had that relationship. If one says, well, he walked with Jesus, he kept the bag, he held the money. He wasn't a prime suspect there at that last supper. He wasn't a prime suspect to betray Jesus, at least in the eyes of the disciples. Jesus already knew before the foundation of the world who would betray him, the son of perdition. But a lost person belongs to God as God's creation. God is Lord over all his creation. He said, all souls are mine, and the soul that sinneth it shall die but not under his covenant. They are his based on creation, but not according to covenant. 
if they remain in unbelief. Unlike Ahab, a Christian, not somebody who says they are, but somebody who has put their trust in what Jesus did at Calvary, resting completely in that. A Christian will never say to Satan, I am thine, and all that I have is thine. He can't give himself to Satan because he belongs to Jesus. Now let's look at verse 5. And the messengers came again and said, Thus speaketh Ben-Hadad, saying, Although I have sent unto thee, saying, Thou shalt deliver me thy silver and thy gold and thy wives and thy children, yet I will send my servants unto thee tomorrow about this time. And they shall search thine house and the houses of thy servants. And it shall be that whatsoever is pleasant in thine eyes, they shall put it in their hand and take it away. Before Ben-Hadad was going to allow Ahab time to send all of these precious things and people to him. But he changed his mind. You'll find out in a moment why he changed his mind so rashly he was getting drunk. He changed his mind. Not only would he not wait for Ahab to send his riches, his wives, and his children, but instead Ben-Hadad would send his servants to conduct a warrantless search of the house and of Ahab and the house of his servants. And Ben-Hadad would take, did you notice, not whatsoever is pleasant in my eyes, but whatsoever is pleasant in thine eyes. That word pleasant is goodly, lovely. Uh, what should the loveliest things be? As far as people go, what should, who should the loveliest ones be to a man? It should be his wife and his children, his, his parents, and siblings, and so forth. So Ben-Hadad here was particularly cruel, desiring to exercise complete control over Ahab to make him miserable. I mean, wasn't it enough for Ahab to cower and say, I'm thine and all that I have? All this did is embolden Ben-Hadad to just run over him. When Asa made Ben-Hadad an enemy to Baasha, he thought wrongly that the enemy of his enemy was his friend. And now we see that statement's not true at all. You know, when children are little, I know you all never did this to your siblings because you're spiritually mature. There can be 400 toys in the house. And when one of the little children goes over to play with this one that's not been played with in a week or two, what does the other one want? He wants a toy that is pleasant in thine eyes. That is something that's in the sin nature right there. And I try to encourage my, my grandchildren away from that, just as I did my children. I was a little rougher with my children. I'd say, give me that. And it was done. And I'll spend a little more time having patience with my grandchildren. But do you see that's in our human nature to find out what's pleasant to you? And I want it now. Now let's look in verse 7. Then the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Mark, I pray you, and see how this man seeketh mischief. For he sent unto me for my wives and for my children and for my silver and for my gold, and I denied him not. 
The word mischief normally translates as the word evil. Look at Ahab's distorted thought process and how it affects what he values. It's not evil in his eyes that he has agreed to give away his family and all of his possessions. What's evil to him is that Ben-Hadad's going to come to Samaria and search his house and the house of his servants. And let's go on and look at verse 8. And all the elders and all the people said unto him, Hearken not unto him, nor consent. Well, the elders and the people were a lot more courageous than Ahab, weren't they? And again, what a coward he was. But the elders said, Hearken not unto him, nor consent. Hearken, as we've run across many times in our Old Testament studies, is translated a few different ways from the Hebrew as hear, as obey. And it means more than just to allow a sound to enter the ear and as an echo be translated into some word or some concept in our brains. Hearkening means hearing with an attitude toward obedience. It means to listen with that attitude of obeying. And then consent is to be willing. So in other words, these elders and people told Ahab, don't do it and don't even be willing to. And these are the kind of people a leader should surround himself with. Don't negotiate with evil. Just don't do it. That would probably be too long a phrase to make for, was it Nike? It said, just do it. We need a commercial for just don't do it. Neither let the spirit be willing to do evil, nor the flesh to be weak. Verse 9 And we'll have to stop for the day. Wherefore, he said unto the messengers of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord the king all that thou didst send, for for to thy servant at the first I will do. But this thing I may not do. And the messengers departed and brought him word again. Ahab said, Ben-Hadad, I'm drawing the line right here. You can have all I have. You can have my wives and my children. But you just can't come down here and get it. Perhaps Ahab was afraid if Ben-Hadad came, he'd never leave. And he wouldn't. There'd be a new sheriff in town, and it wouldn't be Ahab. And next week we'll look at some more evidence of Ahab's fear and what I think it was all about, according to God's word. Must be missed in prayer. Do we have any questions about the lesson, comments? Yes, brother. That's right. And for those of you on the camera who couldn't hear, Brother Fulton mentioned that in the garden, God put everything that was pleasant in Adam's sight. And here Baal, the false god, and his representative uh, Ahab, or Ben-Hadad in this case, is going to try to take away everything that's pleasant in Ahab's sight. All right. Well, let's be dismissed in prayer. Thank you, brother. Father, we're so thankful for those who've come to attend this Bible study, to be fed with your word. And Lord, because of the frailty of the flesh and the distractions we have in our mind, we're asking today that it be the Spirit of God through the teaching. And Father, that you would implant within our heart those truths that we most need so that when we leave this place, And the world comes to us and says, give me all that you have. Lord, we'll say it belongs to God.
you're going to have to see him about that. Now we pray you bless the next hour, the praying, the preaching, the singing, and the exhortation that we may provide one another and so much more as we see the day approaching.